Now, before I read this morning's scripture, let me set it within its historical context. We're entering into the story of Elijah when he was the lone remaining prophet of the God of Abraham, or as he is sometimes called, Yahweh. You see, Elijah at this point had been a wanted man because at God's command, he had caused a severe drought to come into the land for a drought that was to last almost three years. And King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were not happy at all. In fact, they were so upset that Queen Jezebel had killed all the rest of the prophets of Yahweh. So that left Elijah all by himself. God decided now was the time for him to confront King Ahab once more and to get all the prophets of Baal, which was the god that Jezebel and Ahab followed, together to show once and for all it was Yahweh who was only God. So Elijah did what God instructed him, got the 450 prophets from Baal to gather with him in a challenge, winner take all. Each side was to set up an altar, Pilate with wood, cut up a bull to be sacrificed, put it on top of the altar. The prophets of Baal went first. They did as they were supposed to put it there, and then Elijah challenged them, have your god, Baal, light the fire for you. Well, they started chanting. They started dancing. They did everything they could, and they took all day, and, of course, nothing happened. So next, Elijah went, and he did exactly the same thing, but when he was all done, ready to ask God to send fire from the heavens, he did something else. He told the servants to bring four jars of water. Bring those four jars of water and dump it all over the sacrifice, the wood, the altar, not once, not twice, but he did that three times so that by the time they were finished, there was a trough around Elijah's altar. And it was filled with water. So everything was soaked, but he called on God. And he said, okay, God, it's time. And God sent, of course, the fire from heaven. And it burnt and consumed everything, including all of the water that was there. And, of course, then everybody bowed down, except for Queen Jezebel and Ahab. All the rest of the people bowed down and knew that God truly was God. Now, after this, Elijah was told by God to round up the 450 prophets of Baal and they were be put to the sword, which with help, the people there helped to round them up and they were all killed. And of course, as you might suspect, Queen Jezebel was not a happy camper, right? So, even though after they were all dead, The rain started to fall. The three-year drought was ended. They were still not happy. And that's where we pick up this morning's scripture lesson. Now, King Ahab had told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not take your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, she's going to kill him. Then he was afraid. He got up, fled for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked God that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. Elijah looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. He got up, ate, and drank, and then he went in the strength of the food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave, and he spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. Then Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his mantle, went out, and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a still small voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, You shall anoint Hazel as king over Aram. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Loving and generous God, once more I would ask that any words from my mouth or meditations that come to our hearts and minds find acceptance in your sight. For you are our rock, and the source of all love and redemption. Amen. I want us to, each of us, try to put ourselves in Elijah's shoes or sandals, if you will, and think about this question. If God had done all of this with you, if God had helped you face Ahab, if God had helped you defeat 450 prophets, if God had kept you safe, What would you have done after it was all finished and you knew that Queen Jezebel was really ticked off? Would you stay or would you run away? It's pretty hard to say, isn't it? We want to be able to say, yeah, sure, I'd have stuck it out. 
But you see, taking on a bunch of prophets who didn't know anything about warfare, and Elijah was the only one with a sword, that's one thing. Besides, he had help from the people who believed in him and Yahweh. But now, now there's a whole army after him. They're armed to the teeth. They're at Queen Jezebel's command, and they're coming for him. That's kind of another story altogether, isn't it? So, yeah, Elijah against a whole army. Yes, it was time to run and hide. So, Elijah, as we heard this morning, headed out in the wilderness, grew tired, sat under that broom tree, and asked God that he might die. Kind of sounds like he was feeling pretty hopeless at that point. I think he was also afraid of what Jezebel might do with him if he got caught. A long, slow, painful death. So he said to God, let's get this over with. But at that moment, an angel appears and urges him to eat, not once, but twice, so that he'd have enough strength for the journey ahead of him. Forty days and forty nights. Forty days, forty nights. Does that sound like other stories we've heard? You're right. It's that time when you're going out to meet with God. So he heads out to the mountain of Arab, the mountain of God. When he arrived, he spent the night, and he heard God's voice saying, What are you doing here? To which Elijah replied, Look, I've done what you've asked. I took on 450 prophets, killed them, and now Jezebel, she's really angry with me, and she's trying to kill me. But also notice, God doesn't respond to Elijah's complaint, does he? God simply tells him to go outside in the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And, of course, there's the great wind. God is not in the wind. There's an earthquake. God's not in the earthquake. There's a fire. God's not in the fire. And, finally, there is utter silence. And Elijah hears a still, small voice. Now, after all the noise and hoopla, God comes to Elijah quietly. And even after he complains again, God doesn't listen to the complaint. He sends him out to do the work of God. Now, with all of this said, Elijah, after winning the battle of the prophets and getting Jezebel angry, one could say that what Elijah was really asking is, where's God? Where's God? Where are you? Look, God, I did everything you asked, but suddenly I feel all alone. I feel pretty vulnerable. There's an army after me. The world is starting to fall apart. Jezebel wants to do unthinkable things to me as she slowly kills me, so where are you? And Elijah, yeah, he takes off, tired, afraid, depressed enough to want to die, looking for God. Have any of you ever felt that way? Depressed, anxious, looking for God, wondering, where are you, God? I need you. Well, I must confess I have. 
Often I want to scream, where are you, God? Please don't leave us to ourselves. We can't handle this by ourselves. Now that may seem strange coming from a pastor, but don't forget we're human too. There are times I would like to have a sign that God is still around. Now one of my favorite comic strips is the old BC strip. Do you remember that? In the first panel, one of the characters, I think it was Thor, is standing there looking up, saying pretty much what I was just saying. I sure wish I could get some kind of a sign that you're up there. The second panel, all you see is the word thud and a cloud of dust. Third panel, the cloud of dust is cleared. And there is a movie marquee like the one on the front of the old Berkeley Theater, simply flashing, saying, I'm up here. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to once in a while get a sign like that? But the truth is, as the video reminds us, God is here. The psalmist of 139 writes, You know when I sit down, when I stand up, you are acquainted with all my ways. Where can I Flee from your presence, O God. Heaven, Sheol, the farthest limits of the sea, not even the night can hide me from you. God is everywhere. You see, the question is not, where is God? The question is really, where are we? That's what God is asking of Elijah, isn't it? Hey, Elijah, where are you? What are you doing here? You've done well so far, but I have something else for you to do. Earlier I said there are times I want to shout, hey, God, where are you? But instead, if I listen closely, I usually hear silence. And I must remind myself that silence isn't God ignoring me. It's God waiting for me to listen. Listen? Oh, no, you mean I, we have to listen? Yep, listen for that still, small voice. And I assure you, there are times I'm not a very good listener. Just ask my wife, Barb. 46 years of experience with me, she knows half the time I'm kind of not listening. But you see, God doesn't usually beat us over the head to make us listen. Instead, God often comes in the night, at the darkest times in our lives, and gives us a nudge. There is no marquee falling from the sky, just a quiet voice, an inward call oftentimes. And with all the noise of the world, Sometimes it's hard to hear God's voice, isn't it? As I look around the world right now, especially lately, it's easy to get depressed. It's easy to feel hopeless. It's easy not to be able to hear God. Just last week, there were three mass shootings. Over 35 people were killed and more, at least that many, were injured. Tyler Wingate from right here in Berkeley, was beaten to death over a minor traffic accident. 
And when we can no longer speak civilly to each other, instead, we want to draw lines in the sand and say, you're either for me or you're against me. Compromise has become a dirty word or a sign of weakness where everything seems to be about me. And the idea of the common good, it's becoming lost. And if that wasn't enough, we resort to calling each other names. What are we, five years old? Don't you want to put them in the corner and say, you sit in the corner until you can come out and talk nicely to each other and work with each other? And we live in a world where children are ripped away from their parents and put in cages. Yeah, I get depressed and I want to shout, where are you, God? But then I hear in the silence, God in the person of Jesus quietly saying, love your neighbor as yourself. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was hurting and you comforted me. Whenever you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. What I hear God whispering to us is to show each other love and practice hospitality, to welcome the stranger and the homeless. That was the opportunity in this country before it was a country. The Puritans came to this country to get away from persecution and begin new lives. That's when some of my ancestors came over. They were Puritans, if you can believe that. And ever since that time, we have welcomed people who were looking for a safe place to live and raise a family. What's the words on the Statue of Liberty? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. What's that? That, my friends, is hospitality. That's what has made us great. That's what Jesus has been trying to remind us and teach us. There's a story I'd like to share with you from a book entitled Fables for God's People by John Aurelio. It's entitled The Castle. Once upon a time, there was a wonderful prince, and he lived in a valley where he was loved by all the people. He and the people worked together, ate together, celebrated together. There was great peace and harmony in the land because of the love that they had for each other. One day, the people decided to build to show their great admiration for the kindly prince and said, let's build him this marvelous castle, greater than any other castle ever built. For with our prince, we are beyond a doubt the happiest people in the world. It did turn out to be the most incredible castle imaginable. The walls were hewn from rare marble, so fine as to be almost transparent. The towers were made from precious stones, one of ruby, one of sapphire, one of emerald, and one of onyx. The floor was inlaid ivory and the roof gold. People everywhere agreed that it rivaled the sun in brilliance and beauty. Word of the castle began to spread beyond the valley. At first, the curious came from nearby. Then travelers began arriving from far and wide, and it became necessary for the villagers to be hospitable, to set up hotels and restaurants to provide for the needs of these tourists. 
The greater the influx of travelers, the greater became the commerce in the village. The villagers knew that their good fortune was due to the wonderful castle, so in order to assure their continued prosperity, they would regularly polish the stones and clean the towers. The castle continued to sparkle like a jewel, drawing visitors from around the world. Well, the village grew into a city, there was commerce and industry, but with trade and prosperity came rivalry, rivalry, with rivalry came jealousy, with jealousy hate, and with hate contention. There was no longer peace in the valley, love, peace, and hospitality towards each other was gone. Finally, one day, the wonderful prince emerged from the castle. The people had all but forgotten that he still lived there. So without saying a word, the prince began to walk around the castle, and he walked around its circumference seven times. When he was done, the castle collapsed. Why have you done this, the angry people shouted. I've done nothing, the prince replied. Seven times I walked around the circumference searching for your image in its walls and its tower. I found none. The castle no longer reflected the hearts of the people. Thus it could no longer stand. Well, that, my friends, is the danger we face today. What's in our hearts? What do we reflect as people? Where are we as people? The people of the story forgot what love and hospitality was. They grew selfish. They fought and forgot what love was. Love and hospitality is what we need today in regards to each other. Reverend Stephen Mullen reminds us where the word hospitality comes from. It comes from the Latin word hospital. Throughout most of history, a hospital wasn't a place where someone went to be healed or have life-saving surgery. A hospital originally was a place to be comforted, a place to be fed, loved, touched, and cared for. Another word from that same root has shown up in our contemporary language in recent years. It's called hospice. The purpose of hospice workers isn't to cure their patients, but instead to make them as comfortable as humanly possible and help them to live what life they have left to its fullest. Aren't we as the church called to do the same? To bring comfort to the hurting people of the world and hospitality and love to all. Where are we? What's in our hearts? What do we reflect? One last illustration as I close, and that's the difference between porches and decks. Reverend Mullen again said that when he was growing up, he used to sit with his mom and dad on the front porch of their house and watch people go by, often talking with them, getting to know them. But anymore, he writes, it's more fashionable to have patios and decks in the backyard, often complete with privacy fences, which tends to keep us insulated from our neighbors and others. French porches, he says, expose us to others. Decks and porches, or, por or decks and patios, keep us insulated. Which do you think Jesus and God would prefer? I think if we're sitting on the front porch with either God or Jesus, we'd be getting to know each other. We'd be handing out water by the buckets full. 
Not that it would fix all the problems, but it's a way of actually getting to know each other and practicing hospitality. Remember, my friends, the question isn't, where's God? The question really is, where are we? Listen for that still, small voice. In the midst of all the noise and chaos, God is calling us to be loving and hospitable. So let us, at least symbolically, go out to the front porch in our lives and into the world and make the world a bit more hospitable in everything we do and sharing love with everyone we meet. Amen.